Well, good morning again, and welcome to Worship at Trinity. My name is Kurt Heinemann. I'm one of the pastors here, and a warm welcome to you again today. If you've been with us for worship for the past few months, we're in this worship series all year long on being immersed into the biblical story, and we're looking at one book of the Bible every week throughout the course of this year. And today we're looking at Song of Songs. And I just want to give a tiny bit of context, very short today, just a little bit, about the name of this poem. It is titled in some Bibles, Song of Solomon and some Song of Songs. It is attributed to Solomon in the very beginning of the text, but there's no actual historical evidence that Solomon wrote this. There's no historical evidence actually of who wrote this, so we don't really know who authored this text. And so that's why sometimes it's called Song of Songs and sometimes it's called Song of Solomon. I prefer Song of Songs because I just can't imagine that Solomon wrote this poem himself. Um, you'll see what I mean. Song of Songs is eight chapters long, and I sort of wish we had the time to read the whole of it, but we don't. So we're just going to look at one chapter today, chapter seven. So wherever you are today, as Mary invited you to bring a Bible out earlier, hopefully you kept it out, you can open that up or look it up on Bible Gateway or just follow along on the screens right now in front of you as we listen to chapter seven from Song of Songs. Listen to God's word. How graceful are your feet in sandals, O queenly maiden. Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower your eyes are pools in Heshbon. By the gate of Bath-Rabim, your nose is like a tower of Lebanon overlooking Damascus. Your head crowns you like Carmel, and your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in the tresses. How fair and pleasant you are, O loved one, delectable maiden. You are stately as a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I say I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its branches. Oh, may your breasts be like the clusters of the vine, and the scent of your breath like apples, and your kisses like the best wine that goes down smoothly, gliding over lips and teeth. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. Come, my beloved, let us go forth into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, whether the grape blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes give forth fragrance and over our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O oh my beloved. This is the gift of God's word. Thanks be to God. Join me in a word of prayer. Let's pray together. Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So in a few of the commentaries I read this week, some people said that Song of Songs, different times in history, almost 2,000 years ago, it was noticed that these verses were taken and used 
as pub songs. Some people would pull some of the scripture verses out and make a mockery of it, laugh at it, joke about it, as you can sort of imagine, right? And in our modern context, you could even imagine an adolescent, a middle schooler, a high schooler, thinking that the Bible has been this one thing their entire life that they're taught in church, and then all of a sudden they stumble upon Song of Songs, and they can't help themselves but just chuckle at what they discover inside of it, that there is a love poem. And it's not just a love poem, it's about sexuality and deep sexual desire between two people. And for a middle schooler or high schooler, I'm sure you can imagine that's what they're sort of discovering about their part of their humanity as well at that time in their life as they grow up in adolescence. And you could imagine them chuckling at it, right? All this week, I've read this text out loud with a variety of different people, family, friends, staff, other people. Other people on staff have been reading it out loud with other people too. And there's been a mixture of response as they hear the scripture out loud. Some people have been laughing, Some people have felt uncomfortable. Some people's hearts have been racing. Before I came into worship today, I talked to a few people up in the balcony about it, and they were giggling and laughing the whole time. I think they're giggling and laughing right now at the hearing of me reading it. Like, what produces this this feeling of being uncomfortable at the hearing of this being read out loud? You know, it seems like this is a shared experience for the most part, that there is a sense of this being uncomfortable. Today's one of those days that I actually wish you were here in the sanctuary with me and we could look at each other face to face and have a conversation with each other. But instead, here we are, and I'm looking at a camera right now and trying to imagine having a conversation and a dialogue with you about Song of Songs, chapter seven. But I wanna begin with just this question, like what makes us feel so uncomfortable about the reading of this text out loud with other people around us? What makes us feel so uncomfortable about that? Well, For the past few weeks, I have had the chance to read this new book written by Kristen Dumay. She's a historian from Calvin College. And she wrote this book, it's called Jesus and John Wayne. And the subtitle is How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. And it's a really interesting book. It's been really helpful for me. I've really enjoyed reading this book. It's been Essentially, essentially, what she's trying to ask is this question is, you know, back in 2016, how could it be that 81% of evangelicals voted for our current president when it seems like he is antithetical to Christian values himself? Like, how could they have aligned so strongly together? There was no other sector of humans in the country that so aligned with the current president when they voted for him. So like, how could, this, how could this come to be? That's the sort of fundamental question that's driving this book. She herself was born in an evangelical world, and, and so she answers this question through a modern history of the last 50 years. Essentially what she says in the book is this, that in evangelicalism, there's four core theological tenets to claiming this identity of being evangelical, and it is to hold up the Bible and its importance in the life of faith, that it's very important to hold up the Bible. And then two, to think about Jesus' atonement as a very central topic in theology. You know, Jesus died to, uh, to save me from sin. And then to have some kind of conversion experience, you know, the born again experience. As you hear about these things, you, all of a sudden you're converted, you're changed into a new way of life. And then fourth, if these three things are to be true, then you would also want to go tell everybody else about it. That's the evangelical part, to go tell the gospel of these four things. She says these are the four core tenets that you can find on 
you know, National Evangelical Association's website about what it means. But she says, there are demographics of persons who ascribe to these four theological core tenets, but do not claim the identity for themselves. She says that if you look at persons of color in the country, it's only like one out of five people who ascribe to these theological ideas would claim that identity as evangelical. So she says, what's really going on here? If this is what they say they are, but really there's something else within the culture that takes a precedence over these theological convictions. And what she's able to effectively articulate in her 50-year history of modern evangelicalism is that there has been this, essentially what ends up happening is after World War II and some years after that, there's a gender, people don't know what to do with men anymore, basically. I'll just say it that way. You read the book, okay, if you want to read the book. But essentially it's like, we don't know what to do with men. And so what ends up happening, that's where the title Jesus and John Wayne comes from, is what is sort of espoused within evangelicalism is to have a hyper-militant masculinity and to emphasize that and lift that up so that men would be strong and proud and kind of take on the bravado of a John Wayne. And not just that in and of itself, but that that would take place in the context of relationships within marriage itself between men and women in a hierarchical fashion. You know, they would pull verses from Ephesians that say, women, submit yourselves to your husbands. And so this is essentially one of those core pieces of the cultural reality within evangelicalism that gets highlighted, right? It gets, it gets, it gets elevated above these th- core theological tenets, and that becomes a part of the culture. Now, I'm sure you're saying to me, Kurt, why are you talking about this? You know, I don't ascribe to the identity of evangelical. Maybe you do. You're like, why are you talking about this? Well, I think what's most compelling in this book and why I'm talking about it is because she tells this story about how in the 1960s, these national networks of evangelicals decided to create publishing houses by bookstores all across the country, create networks of radio stations too, that would take these core cultural ideas and propagate them through this network of production and consumption of these publishing houses and these bookstores. So you hear about these books in the 1960s and 70s that you know, tell women to be home and to be available sexually to their husbands every day and to wear certain kind of clothing to, be, you know, to seduce them every night basically and keep them happy while they go to work 40 hours a week and all these kinds of ideas. And one of these books, you know, it sold five million copies in the first year it was written. And ever since then, there's been this movement towards five million books every year being produced within this kind of milieu of sexuality taking place within evangelicalism. Well, guess what? That takes up like 90% of the market share of Christian books, okay? So think about it. If you've been coming to this church your whole life, if you've been going to other churches in your life, and you're in a small group, Bible study, a men's group, a women's group, you're in, I don't know, a middle school group, a, a children's ministry group. Like, where do you go to find good books to read for your Bible study? Well, you go to these bookstores. You go to these bookstores because that's all the books that frankly exist within this worldview. And so 90% of books you might end up reading about sexuality within church pertain to this evangelical worldview. And so it's almost like a Venn diagram, you know, like you may not ascribe to this identity, 
But this identity exists, and because of the way that these books are produced and shipped and consumed, there's overlap within our lives. There's overlap within our lives. And it's serious. It's, it's a very serious thing. A couple years ago, before Eugene Peterson died, and it was like two weeks before he died, his last interview uh, that he gave to a reporter, and they asked him about LGBTQ issues. And he said, you know, I... You know, I think it's actually just fine. So long as people are in covenant relationship and they love each other, I think it's just fine for LGBTQ people to be in relationship with each other. They could be pastors, they could be elders in the church too, and that's just fine. The very next day he said that, and this was reported, these publishing houses and these bookstores threatened to take all of his books off the bookshelf. Eugene Peterson, he translated the message. He wrote 18 or 20 books that everybody loves and reads. They were going to take them all off the bookshelves. The day after that, Eugene recanted and said, I subscribe to a biblical view of marriage to keep those books on the bookshelf. Like, this is a powerful dynamic that's at work in our life. And I think two things. It's influenced us. It's influenced us. Now, there's a much longer history here, and I only have 20 minutes. <laughs> if we had time to have more conversation about this, we could. But within this sort of worldview, there's on the one hand, like, purity culture, where you don't even kiss each other until you get married. There's no physical intimacy at all. And then on the other end of the spectrum, there's kind of like the opposite, and opposite of purity would be promiscuity, right? And there are certain persons who have advocated for that so as a way to bring people to church. It's hard to explain, but it all falls kind of under the umbrella of this sort of militant masculinity idea. Like we've come into contact with this. It's been a part of our life. And I think it makes it hard for us to know what to say if we don't claim this identity because we have overlap, but we don't really know what this identity is over here because it's the minority perspective where the majority perspective is quite clear about what they have to say about human sexuality and relationships as it pertains to these ideas, right? And they have the dominant say about what these things are. So as I said, I think that's sort of what leads to feeling uncomfortable sometimes when we read this out loud in the life of a church and with people around us. It can feel uncomfortable because of these cultural realities that we've come into close contact with. One of the commentaries I read this week had this beautiful quote from a rabbi that was written 2,000 years ago. His name is Rabbi Akiba. And I wonder if we could get that quote up on the screen right now. I'd like to read it to you. This is what the rabbi wrote. The rabbi wrote, heaven forbid no Jew ever questioned the sanctity of the Song of Songs, for all the world is not worth the day when the Song of Songs was given to Israel. For all the writings are holy, but the Song of Songs is the holy of holies. The Song of Songs is the holy of holies. I just want to stop and wonder with you for a moment, right? Here is a rabbi, a person who knows scripture through and through. That's part of what it means to become a teacher in the Jewish tradition is to know the texts so well. And he is elevating the Song of Songs as holy of holies within his context. It's like, how could he approach this text with such deep reverence? You know, it's almost the opposite of, of mockery, of laughing. There's such deep reverence here for the rabbi. So what about this text brings out that reverence for him? Well, I'd like to suggest a couple of things. One, if we read this poem, the whole of the poem, the eight chapters, just at face value that it is about a man and a woman and their relationship with each other, it's frankly one of the most beautiful expressions of human sexuality and love that you can find in all of Scripture. And not just all of Scripture, but even in the ancient Near East. 
Uh, in the ancient Near East, there was a lot of love poetry that was written and preserved, and we found it from Egypt, from Mesopotamia. But this is the only poem that takes the shape of a dialogue of one person's voice and another person's voice. And this mutual desire and this mutual pursuit of one another. I think that is so beautiful. And all the other contexts in the ancient Near East, it's one person sort of objectifying another person's body, of thinking about another person. But in this, we see the beauty and, frankly, the pursuit of one another. And you can hear even in the scripture I read, it's all about, I say I will. It's like this mutual acclaim of one another and expression of love for one another. And it all takes place in the context of freedom. And so I think in the context of the rabbi saying this is the Holy of Holies and why he brings reverence to it is because thank God for it, honestly. Like, can you think about all the other stories in the Old Testament that have to deal with sexuality? It, they are not good stories, okay? <laughs> they all have this kind of utilitarian perspective. Oftentimes sex is used for revenge. Like I'll go into my father's tent and I'll uncover his toes. You know, or like bring that person out of your house right now. We're gonna do something about it. You know what I mean? If you think about the stories in the Old Testament about sexuality, it's like I would rather my kids not read those stories than I would <laughs> to have children read this story because it highlights this mutual pursuit of two people in freedom for love for one another. And thank God for that in our Christian context too, given the whole of the biblical witness, right? Because there are places where people cherry pick verses to, to create that kind of identity that we've come into close contact with. And yet here's Song of Songs, and I think that is beautiful. This idea of mutual pursuit of two humans in love with each other. And there's not one over and against the other, but it's a mutual pursuit in their desire for one another in the midst of the sexual relationship. I think it's beautiful, and it's so needed to balance out all the other stuff that frankly is just not, uh, not stuff that's really healthy, frankly, the utilitarian perspective. I think if you also can just kind of imagine for a moment this poem to be at face value about man and a woman in a relationship and sexuality. But for the rabbi and many rabbis and many Christians too, Origen was the very first, or sorry, Origen was a scholar that lived in the fourth century. He's Christian. And the very first commentary he wrote was on the book of Song of Songs. He wrote the very first commentary that was ever written on any book of the Bible was written on Song of Songs. And essentially what they both end up saying is that in this text, we can read it allegorically. That one character in the story is God, and the other character in the story is God's people. And you can begin to look at this story as God and God's people. And when you look at it that way, you can see a God who freely gives God's self in self-sacrifice to the other person, Right? and says, I will give my love to my beloved. And vice versa, you know, when you think about the scriptures in the New Testament, they talk about the church being the bride of Christ. So the other person freely gives their love back to God in faithfulness and covenant relationship with each other. So if we read it as an allegory, you can see within the story just the beautiful way that mutual pursuit can take place between God and God's people. And that is a beautiful thing. God's people it does not take place in the context of a hierarchical forced relationship, right? Some people look at that in the, in, in the Godhead, and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they see subordinationism. 
but really there's mutuality that takes place in the context of that triune God. And so there is that mutuality that takes place between God and God's people too. God freely gives God's self into relationship to God's people. And God's people can freely receive that faithfulness and give that faithfulness and trust back to God in love. I can give my love over to my beloved, as the scriptures say. So I think just those two ideas, we can see that the text can be the holy of holies, and there's a deep reverence here within Song of Songs in an appropriate place in the biblical canon, no doubt. Look, <laughs> there's been a lot of stuff going on in life the last few weeks, right? I mean, last week when we were together in coffee hour, that was the most spirited conversation we've had as a result of the insurrection that happened at the Capitol a week and a half ago. And I know right now, your anxiety levels are a little bit higher just anticipating what might take place this week in our life, right? We're nervous about it. People are worried about it. Maybe you're not worried about it. Maybe I'm just reading into it. But when I've talked to people, I can just feel there's sort of a tension rising and building around us about wondering what might take place as a result of what has happened. And tomorrow's Martin Luther King Day. So no doubt we want to try to live a life in that example of pursuing justice and making good things happen in this world. And so tension's rising in this world. And there's a way that when we turn on the TV and we pay attention to the stuff that's going on, that anxiety that builds up and rises, we can just get sucked into all that stuff that's happening, right? Sucked into what's going on. It can start to take over our emotions, take over our relationships that we have, and go, no, I, I can't pay attention to you right now because I must watch the 10 o'clock news tonight. Like, I have to see what happened today. Look, it's good to know what's going on in the world. I'm not saying don't go know what's going on in the world. But there's also a way that our attention can get sucked out and extracted and taken away from us. And I think one of the beauties of Song of Songs is to see these two people fully in love with each other and their attention upon one another solely. They're not distracted at all. They don't have something to provide them notifications to take them away from each other. They just have each other in the fullness and the beauty of that relationship. So maybe this week as your anxiety gets highlighted, I don't know. All this stuff's important. I'm not saying it's not important. But hey, we have the Song of Songs. And it's the Holy of Holies. Maybe go read that this week. If you are in a loving relationship with somebody, read that up. Maybe pull it out and read it together and wonder together about it. And imagine yourself in mutual pursuit of one another and love towards one another. And, and I say that full well knowing that there are some people who may not be, right? And in the context of that, think about God. That's a totally appropriate way to read this poem as an allegory of God's love for you and being known as a person found in a God who is pursuing you, who wants to know all of who you are and wants you to bring all of that knowledge to God. Song of Songs is the Holy of Holies. Join me in prayer. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we do thank you for the inclusion of this poem into the canon, God. And maybe just in a moment of like a prayer of confession right now, we confess, God, that we have not always got this right. We confess that we have not always got, gotten right human sexual relationships. In fact, we get it wrong probably way more often than we get it right. And in the context of that, God, I would just ask that you would redeem out of all that is broken in humanity that, God, we could show and express our love for those people in our life that we 
that we want to love in those kinds of covenant relationships and that you would capture for us a vision of what healthy might look like in these sexual relationships. And that, you know, for all the ways that we've seen negativity and unhealthiness, we're thankful, God, for this text that shows us this mutual pursuit and mutual desire for one another. God, we thank you for who you are and that you are constantly in pursuit of us and your love, it does just capture us. And so we thank you for that, God. We lift this sermon up to you and these words up to you now, and we ask that we can continue to worship you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.